Thunderbrunt. the show where we treat the final edit of a movie like the script and today we are going to talk about scream 1996 not 2022 first we're going to go around the zoom table and introduce ourselves let's start with jamie i'm jamie nash i am a screenwriter and the writer of save the cat writes for tv I am Jimmy George. I am a screenwriter and script consultant, and I'm going to throw my Twitter handle on there. My Twitter handle is at Jimmy R. George. What's your, what's your Twitter handle, Jamie? Come on. I'm at Ladies. Jamie underscore Nash. I was going to say net. I don't know why. Jamie.netscape. Jamie underscore Nash. And I'm Bob Rose. My Twitter handle is at Bob. And since we're doing a classic episode today... And we're gonna be talk all gonna be talking fast today because we're in a time crunch. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So we're gonna. So but we're still gonna go around and we're gonna say what does scream mean to all of us? We should have done speed on a yeah, time crunch. Done- that would have been, <laughs> yeah, been like, way fun. There's only ninety seconds. There's eighty seconds left. And then we do speed too um, when we have just like a whole day. You know, we just take it so slow as possible. Yeah. Cr- um, crank, crank. We have to be angry about yeah. the whole. Time. <laughs> we should do crank anyway. Um, uh, so, yeah, okay. so scream, uh, Jimmy, go ahead. I'll go ahead and start because I had completely forgotten about how important this, somehow I had forgotten how important this movie was to me until watching it. Cause I hadn't watched it in like 20 years. Um, I'm going to say with ab- absolutely certain if scream didn't exist, this show wouldn't exist because it is the first screenplay I ever read it. And I, which I had forgotten. Um, it is the movie that inspired, it's not a formative story that like informed my tastes and stuff from childhood, but it is the movie that I wrote a ripoff of this. It was the first screenplay I ever wrote. And it, within four years, I had a literary agent off that shitty ripoff script. So, uh, this is a movie that like, sort of like changed the trajectory of my life, oddly. Um, so like, if you really want to like, just look at it, that's pretty much it's it, So yeah, it's kind of important to me. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jamie. Yeah, I, uh, I don't, it's not as important to me, but it's one of my top 50 films, I'd say if I had to make a okay. list. So that's pretty important. Uh, it's right up there at the top. And every time I watch it, I'm impressed by it. It's one of those, like, even I rewatched it last night. I'm still impressed by it. And I was kind of done with slasher movies, just, and the world was kind of done in the 90s with slasher movies at the time. I was like, you know, I came I came up in the 80s, so I saw all the slasher movies of the 80s. And honestly, I didn't care to see any more. And then this one showed up, and I loved it. And uh, I think it opened the door for more slasher movies, which we still see to this day. So, uh, yeah, that's my, that's my scream take. 
Um, for me, I I got I saw every Scream in theaters. I love Scream. I didn't come around to loving Scream one until probably like I would say four or five years later, because when I was because my memory of Scream was it was kind of like I didn't understand it back then. You know that when it first came out, I just saw it because I saw every movie, <laughs> and yeah. Scream on the surface is a movie that seemed like it was for like douchebags and assholes and trendy <laughs> stuff. I didn't understand that it was actually like commenting on the horror genre. <laughs> I was too young and I was an idiot, and and I think I also reacted to what it did to horror in the ensuing years. So I never really embraced Scream until probably around 2000, 2001 ish. You know, when I like after I graduated high school, I was like, oh, this is actually genius. Oh, I never I never because to me, I just thought I pushed Scream into all the like, you know, all the other stuff that came after it. It was the Matrix of horror movies for a while. Yeah. Right? Everything wanted to be Scream. Yeah. And I blamed Scream for what it did to that stuff. And although it all looked the same. I'm still seeing that. As really? a person okay. who reads, I mean, dude, the number of times I've circled and hit a red, wrote a red X on the the phrase, it's like we're in a horror movie. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we you, you talk about, uh, what is it, uh, confidence phrases or was it? Uh, uh, insecurity. Insecurity. Lines. Right. Like this could, this could be a movie filled with them, but it's not somehow. <laughs> that's the point. Yeah, that's the um, point. That's the point. <laughs> I guess yeah. what I'm saying is I thought it was a movie filled with insecurity lines when I first saw it as a kid, <laughs> and I didn't realize yeah. how genius it was until a little bit later. It took me a little while, which also was 20 years ago, so I don't feel that bad about it. Yeah, you were young. Yeah. So I, was yeah. I. I was 16. Yeah. I so. think I came, I came around kind of when uh, was it Scream 2 came out. Was it Scream Two? Was like how many years after that? Like two or three? I started appreciating it more, and uh, gotcha. I actually, I'm a fan of Scream Four. If I had, to, yeah, I, I've, I've said that. Love it. I yeah. love it. And you know, Jay and Silent yeah. Bob were in three. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and honestly, I and I can't. I didn't think about the context of this movie, but it made a ton of money, and it kind of put Dimensions horror on the map. If I remember correctly, mm -hmm. so yeah, Dimension kind of became the hot name in horror. I, yeah, they were the Blumhouse of that era. They were the Blumhouse of that era. All the all the big and and they kind of had a target. They kind of went the screen model. You know, they. I mean, a lot of them were Kevin Williamson movies. Yep. Then yep. they also had Halloween and I think Hellraiser and some other stuff like that mm -hmm. that would come out. H two O. Yeah, but the, yeah. but the the movie made a hundred and three uh, million dollars million dollars uh domestically and 173 nice. worldwide Holy shit and in 96 in 96 yeah. i also think it's interesting that it didn't do that opening weekend it was a snowball effect from mm -hmm. good word of mouth they thought it was mm -hmm. a flop initially of course yeah mm -hmm. when i was looking it up and this is the thing this is the thing that we'll get into when we talk about the the opening sequence later but like they're it's hard to remember a time where there wasn't the system in place that there is now with movie releases. There wasn't uh, the internet where like all the marketing controlled the narrative, right? We didn't think it was about Nev Campbell. We thought it was about Drew Barrymore. Um, the word of mouth came from like 
traditional word of mouth, which wasn't online. Like there was no social media to like spread it's the word. Yeah, it's not, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like such a different like market, and and this plays to it. Yeah, I think it's interesting too that apparently it was Drew Barrymore's idea to not be Cindy Prescott. Yeah, <laughs> it was her idea to put herself on the poster and use her image. Fucking to, brilliant! I like it. It adds to the meta of the whole thing. So yeah, perfect. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't really know why, but the way box office mojo, I don't remember when Scream came out. Like it was how I thought it was summer for some reason in my head, but maybe it was it's Christmas, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. It's like Christmas. Cause it's it Christmas movie. They, they don't, they put it in 97, but then they only put it's 97 grosses. So it doesn't really. Gotcha. So anyway, but I'm going to read this. I'm going to read you some of these, these top tenors here just super quick. So where would fit in? It looks like it would fit in an eleven based on if we rounded it up, but not some of my favorite movies in this year. <laughs> you have, you have number ten is the First Wives Club at one hundred and five. Like first Wives Club. Okay, now, I'm sure we'll be doing that in the podcast in a couple of weeks. Okay, um, it's fine. One hundred one hundred one Dalmatians. Is okay, number nine at one hundred eight. Okay. A Time to Kill, which is okay movie. I mean, all this not... John Grisham stuff. Yes. That was big in the yeah. mid 90s. Uh, the Bird Cage, which I. I love be, the Bird you know. Cage. Yeah. Uh, it's good. It's good. Oh, I, man. I, mean, I think it's I'll great. I'll take the Bird Cage. Yeah. Uh, Ransom uh, at 125 million, a movie that's kind of forgotten in some ways. Yeah. Ron um, Howard. Ron Howard. Yeah. Ron Howard. Yeah. Had a great trailer, I remember, because it was just like. I'm Give not back giving you the money. Son. Yeah, I don't care. You're not getting a penny. Wow, Leave Schreiber's in that too. So there's two Leave Schreiber oh, movies, movies in the. How about that? Excuse me, Ray Donovan. <laughs> now, but uh. yeah, now, now, a movie <laughs> that a, a movie that I'm sure Bob liked, but really never did it for me was The Nutty Professor. That's one. Oh yeah, I love uh, The Nutty Professor. Okay. Sure. The The Rock at number four. Uh, mean, the Rock is a yeah. fucking a class A for me. You know that. <laughs> Mission Impossible number three. Twister number two and Independence Day number one. Wow, which we uh, will inevitably be doing. We have to do that. Yeah, we yeah. have to do so it. That, that's your list. So it it, it ends up honestly. Like, we should do Twister too. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm just shocked. Scream ends up behind First Wives Club. That kind of that kind of says it all to me. Yeah. Wow. First Wives Club is fine. It's like <laughs> okay. It's First Wives movie. Bob it is First. interesting how how, yes. how the world sign me up how, for. First Wife How Club the is the tick. is the nine to five of the nineties. There you go. Okay. Okay. Come on. And nine to five is a classic. Okay. I think it's the Ninja Turtles of ninety six. Well, as we know, hey, our most popular episode. <laughs> yeah, by people far. love Ninja Turtles, Jamie. <laughs> I, I have the first comic issue of First Wife Club. By the way. <laughs> Guys, you have to listen to another episode to get that joke. <laughs> Talk right. about self-aware. <laughs> yes. okay. Satire tone. Yeah. Anyway, so for a day we are short on time. That was for, my yeah. For let's, let's let's do that. Um, <laughs> do we want to talk about uh, Kevin Williamson a little bit? Just a little, little bit, Jamie. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. So Kevin Williamson, this was his second script, uh, I think, because I think Killing Miss Tingle was the first. Teaching Miss Tingle. Teaching, yeah. Teaching Miss Tingle. I think it started as killing right isn't that what it, i think that was yeah his, it is that's why it, in your head it's a better title right yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what uh, we do so he he so and then he sold this one uh after that and this one really was the one that propelled him kind of to start him because he directed teaching miss tingle right yeah is that mm -hmm. correct? yeah so he was able to kind of 
pull that off, I guess, off the strength of this and Scream 2 and, and every other horror movie that he kind of, you know, dipped into over the years. Bob and I were kind of talking about him. He was super hot, you know, for... He, he was just a guy. sexy man. Just he, he was the, <laughs> he was the screenwriter of note for a few. Right, years. he was the Shane Black of the he late '90s and early 2000s. Everybody, everybody wanted wanted some of that Kevin Williamson magic. And then I think I think he kind of when he went to Dawson's Creek, I, it almost felt like to me, and I didn't watch Dawson's Creek. Yeah, I it did. Felt to I... Me, it felt to me like that's he found the thing he really wanted mm-hmm. to do in Dawson's Creek. It's about him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, and then not that he falls off the map, he's still active to this day. And I think he really went into television, but he wasn't the Shane Black guy that he was before Dawson's Creek. Instead, he was, he was like, you know, Mr. Television showrunner. I mean, Vampire Diaries, he's got so many hits. Banking, banking billion dollar checks, you know, from, from television shows. So anyway, that's my, my quick spiel on. I'm gonna, I'm gonna from time to time as we go along i'm going to quote the commentary if you haven't listened to the scream commentary i i don't know what's on the blu-ray now but i i just watched the dvd last night it is fresh 1997 Cra- west craven and kevin williamson talking about scream while they're writing scream 2 it is a gold mine for anyone who likes either of those people who loves the movie it it, they focus so much on the story and the choices and the problem solving of making this movie from a storytelling standpoint. It is a gold mine. So check that out. And I'm going to be quoting Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson as we bring up the topics. I got to assume on. that that's on the Blu-ray. Why wouldn't it be? I, you would hope so. It's so fresh, man. Like, it's so cool to hear Kevin Williamson, like, jazzed about the fact that this was the first movie made from a something he wrote like he's still excited about that his like, life is it, is in front of him still yeah yeah, yeah it's, yeah. it's <laughs> right. really like what an interesting time capsule um and and speaking of that i i just wanted to bring up the script for this movie super quick because i get asked all the time do you have any scripts you recommend i think somebody asked me that on twitter the other day and there are very few that i really do but this is one script that well, I, I honestly, I probably don't recommend it. I, I haven't recommended it. Not that I don't recommend it. I just, I'm always stumped. This is one of the ones that I would recommend people read because I really think this one style-wise uh, can help you. Like if you're a writer and you're trying to, maybe you overwrite a little bit, maybe you underwrite a little bit. I think this one has the perfect, I think it's a little underwritten it's in, really in the best lean. way. In yeah. the best way. And mm-hmm. I think because it's a modern script, it can do that. Like a bedroom. That's all you need mm-hmm. to know. Moving yeah. on. You know, it's not like the sun shines on the bedroom. <laughs> yeah, no, the prose the is very no. lean. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, yeah. It moves so quick. And yeah. uh, it just it just gets through things. And he has a lot of, he also does a lot of directing with the words. Mm-hmm. I, I actually use it with my students. I use Scream, the first page. Because a lot of my students will come in and they'll write a script like, interior kitchen a modern day kitchen an oven there's jiffy pop blah 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 the <laughs> phone rings but if you look at if you look at this script and and this is why and he uses we see and stuff but this is what why you don't have to say close up i'm just going to read the first couple lines so the way he starts it is how a director it's almost how you see it it's closer to a shot list without feeling like a shot list mm-hmm. fade in 
on a ringing telephone. A hand reaches for it, bringing the receiver up to the face of Casey Becker. That's He's calling out the shots in that. He's saying, the first thing you're going to see is a ringing telephone. A hand reaches in. The hand brings it up. Then we introduce Casey Becker, a lesser screenwriter, and many of many people that are new to screenwriting, they almost write it like you'd write a play, you know, interior, living room, uh, Casey Becker sits around, blah, 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 the, you know, the lights are on, the TV's on, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I'm going to hear Jamie's yeah, blah, blah, blah. voice every yeah, time yeah. I'm reading a client script from here on in. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is what you should be t- trying to do. You should close your eyes and think what the audience will see and then write that. And, mm-hmm. and Scream does a really good job of that. And the, the other thing I'll say about it is if you listen to people, like if you, I think there was an oral history of Scream out there maybe a year ago I read, but there were a lot of interviews. Like, I don't know, this year's the anniversary of this? Because I remember last year I listened to a bunch of interviews about Scream. I don't know why. Maybe it was something else, Kevin Williamson. But everybody who read the script said they read the, they couldn't believe how fast the script read. Like they read it in 40 minutes. It was super fast. And they got to this opening scene and started to read it and were so hooked in this opening scene. They just were, they were all in by page 15. And I think so. I think there's a lot of really good instructions. This is one of those few scripts, you know, that I can think of. You know, I think seven might be another one that I recommend to people. There's there's a few others. Um, I I actually have the opinion. So in a a super side, I'm of the opinion you should track down scripts, spec scripts that sell to the studios that sold in the last couple of years. Like, I believe that's what you should read. But that aside, this is one of those scripts that I think there's a lot of value to reading. Mm-hmm. So that's that's yeah. my spiel on the script. And and dude, like I said, like so I was 16 years old, and in 1996 there was no search database for screenplays. It wasn't like today where you could just get a PDF of any script. Pretty much like anything you want, you can just type in, look for the script PDF, and it'll pop up on Google. Um, this was in Barnes and Noble um bound screenplay with the cover of the poster sitting out there like screaming at me literally and (laughs) i and i picked it up and i was like what is this and i flipped and i probably read that first 15 pages in the bookstore right and i was like it was like a revelation to me like oh this is what a movie looks like on the page like i didn't have i didn't realize that was like a thing it's, that like people it's funny had you, seen, had you seen screams before that oh happened? yeah i was 16 okay, yeah okay, i mean yeah, i was yeah. in high school but what i'm saying is like it was like all of a sudden it was bringing this new form art form to like my attention that i didn't do, realize yeah. was a thing people were doing i was a kid do, um, do the, they just all like made it up on the spot yeah <laughs> i used to too. yeah do, do the right thing was that for me like do the right thing uh spike lee came out with a book and and the screenplay was in the back of awesome. making it do the right thing. But I remember in the 90s, I have a couple of those printed. I think on my shelf right now, I still have my Blood Simple on my shelf. I have Truman awesome. Show. I have a bunch of them I bought in the 90s like that. Yeah, before before they were more readily available for free yeah. all everywhere, that was a thing that was like the, more common. The problem was they, they used to reformat them a little bit. So mm-hmm. while they, they would retrofit look, them to the final edit. They, mm-hmm. they retrofit yeah. them. Well, mm-hmm. not only that, but they'd retrofit them to a book book publishing yeah mm-hmm. so you know they might not look exactly like the screenplay this did like, not yeah. do that this looked exactly like the screenplay even to the point that like the font 
was Courier. Good. Um, good. So I yeah. was like, whoa, this is weird. And <laughs> now, now I get sent those by the truckload by the WGA because every time during award seasons, they'll send you those books out. Oh, geez. And I have tons <laughs> of them, like to the point where if you're in one of my classes, I'm like giving them out for free. I bring it up. Here, take them. Them. Say, That's awesome. Them? Yeah, I'm going to throw them away. So there you go. Oh, poor trees. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I do enjoy the, the, you sent us a link to the actual script, Jimmy, and I do yeah. enjoy the font on this one. Oh, yeah. Uh, on the, there's on the, the, cover the cover page. page. Like, the yeah, cover it's page. Like, yeah. It's like a yeah. Halloween bloody font. It's like the, <laughs> the cheesiest font you could ask for. <laughs> But it, it works for the movie. It works. So, yeah, yeah, it totally yeah. works. By, yeah. by the way, his contact is an APA agent. How about that? APA back in the day. <laughs> I am also represented by APA, but not oh, just, shit. Justin Dardis, uh, whoever that is. I don't know if he still works in the industry or not. He's probably like the big time writer agent. He's That's, listening to, to this. Like, like this. He's a big fan. Yeah, he's like, you assholes. Dardis. <laughs> he cho- he chose he chose the font. I'm sure he was the one. <laughs> He's the font guy. He's uh, the font guy. Okay, so and this the script is available online for free too. Just mm-hmm. so everyone knows. Anyone yep. listening, you can. It's mm-hmm. not like this is. You don't have to buy it. You can just get it yeah. for free. Yeah. Um, Monster in the house. Talk about it. Yeah. So Monster in the house is a save the cat genres. The save the cat genres are. Unlike regular genres, and I don't, I never like, you probably hear me say this a lot. I don't like the fact they use the term genres because people get it confused. So it's not comedy and horror and things like that. Yeah. Instead, it's, it's a, it's a pattern. It's a storytelling pattern, patterns that he sees. And there are ones like Golden Fleece, which is like a quest movie, Buddy Love, which is like a love story or a friendship story. This particular one is Monster in the House. We we talked about it before. If you listen to the podcast, if not, why haven't you? Go back and listen to our other Monster <laughs> in the House podcast. So Monster in the House is defined the following way. There's a monster. There's a house they're trapped in of some sort. Um, and, and, and they're inside it. Uh, there's a trap. <laughs> so they're the three things. And, uh, the, and, the, and, the, and the house is not – and the trap is not always – Figured literal, ignores the house, right? Nor is the house, yeah. I always consider it they, I, I mean, the way I consider the house, another way to say it, why can't they get out? <laughs> that's yeah. that's mm-hmm. the thing. Why can't they escape? What's the thing they can't escape, or what's the What's the boundary? It could be of a spaceship. Escape? It could be a perimeter on the you know, it could, it be, could be their mind, fence. it could be their mind, right? I think, I think, horror, if if you don't take away the freedom to escape then it's not really a horror movie. Like this is my own personal definition of horror. And that's why I think something like, I'm not, I don't even know the plot details of this movie per se, but like something like Underworld is a <laughs> science fiction uh, horror. You know, it's more science fiction, <laughs> but because, because those characters are bringing the action as much. And now I, again, I don't know that plot. Like I, that plot, they might no be trapped. I, no I really don't. But what, <laughs> I've seen that. I can't tell you what the plot but, <laughs> but like, if you, I, I think if you're in a movie where you're hunting horror and you don't get trapped by it, I don't think that's horror anymore. It's I think it's those something are, else. Those it's are action. action movies. Those are it's, not horror movies. It's action with spooky tropes. And that's really what I think defines horror. And I think that's why Monster Nails is cool is because if you take away that free will, if they're trapped, you can't get out. But anyway, that's Monster in the House. I mean, if you want to say we've done we've done Nightmare on Elm Street, that's also a Wes Craven film. Mm-hmm. 
the mind mm-hmm. of the children are the, is the house mm-hmm. yes. in that yeah. whole franchise, right? Yeah. Just as an exactly. example. Exactly. Uh, outside of Underworld. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. That's why, like, we, we didn't, we kind of ragged on The Last Conjuring a little bit. And I think because that didn't have as great of a trap. Um, it was yeah. a, it was more dude with a problem, which is another genre than it was a mm-hmm. trap, a true monster in the house. So, but the original <laughs> Conjuring is a monster in the house. Jamie, what would you say is the sin in this movie? The sin. That is a good question. Is it, do you, th- and it's funny because uh, Blake, Blake has this one in his book and I forgot to look it up before we started. He, this is in uh, Save the Cat Goes to the Movies. It's, it's his prime example of monster in the house. But I'm not sure that he mentions the sin in it. I don't he, remember. He sort of skirts around it. Um, yeah. And, and uh, my yeah. gut says it's Nev's. Didn't she kind of frame somebody? And so, of, so yeah, we're yeah, gonna accuse, right? We're gonna get, yeah, exactly. We're gonna get into uh, Sydney's issues, um, but it, it doesn't really necessarily bring about. But it does kind of bring about the monster in some ways. Her well, issue, yeah. Um, I guess, I guess you tap her into her say sin. like. yeah what's the what are the killer's motives and are they are they related to the sin and the killer's motives according to them are 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 twofold and and we'll get into that later her her sin is like lineage it's not really her sin. yeah it's it's hard to it's a little messy yeah 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 Yeah, but by the way so and i didn't mention sin so a monster in the house usually there's a sin uh, almost always that brings about the monster whether the sin is i don't know not closing the beaches that you know in jaws or something like that whether the sin is um not acknowledging the supernatural or or something there's there's always some kind of sin or or uh what building the houses and removing the tombstones but not the bar- bodies that's like the classic sin so sometimes the sin is not something the protagonist does sometimes society does it and the protagonist mm-hmm. pays society the is the sin can, yeah. So, so, so in this society's like uh, basically slut shaming of her mother. Mm-hmm. Yes, yep. is sort of the sin, right? Exactly. Because that's what makes Cotton Weary look guilty when they were actually having consensual yep. relations. And right, right. Th- that, that's where Blake Snyder falls on it because I know in if you talk about her character arc, he kind of relates it to the the virgin, the sex, the the whole slasher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, people have sex die, but she kind of gets over that and lives anyway and stuff like that. I, I beg And we're remember. gonna and we're gonna uh we'll go we'll go ahead and talk about it now. I think t- talking about the house sort of like validates what you guys just said. Like okay. the house yeah. is is Woodsboro, right? A small, sexually conservative California town made famous by tabloids uh, of like the brutal slaying of a woman who was having extramarital affairs all over town. So that's like a very specific why here. When I, when I read um, uh, scripts, one of the first things I look at with the premise and whether it's strong enough is, is the setting specific enough that it fits the concept. And here, like it's, it's it is so specific you know you have the slut, like you said the slut shaming the sex the murder uh the the murderous past it's all and 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 then the people they talk a lot about this on the commentary that how how uh, intentional it was that all the kids are like cynical self-centered teens who mock the violence and don't take the suffering of their peers seriously 
just like the teens who enjoy horror movies. Right, right. <laughs> and so, like, uh, so you know, even the the residents of the town are specific to the premise. Do you guys think also that this is might be a bit weird, but I think it might transfer into the next thought. Um, do you think that the house could also be Sydney's like reputation? Absolutely. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yes, there's Woodsboro, but she's also trapped completely by every, by mm-hmm. her family's reputation, her reputation. She yeah, cannot escape right. that at yeah. all. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I think you're right. Think until, about the bathroom until, scene. And, the bathroom until scene. Until she grows, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And right. takes she control completely... of her of her narrative. Yeah. Yeah. And by, by well the way. Well said, Bob. You know, Nightmare on Elm Street also had lineage as a big part mm-hmm. of it. So the other Wes Craven movie, it was yeah. the sins of the parents that really befall the yeah befall the children. yeah that yeah. they had to deal with those sins of the past sort of thing. You know, well that kind of brings us to like the here and now, right? The why here, yeah. Why now. Like I said, with the with the premise, when you're when you're coming up with a premise, specifically horror, but it works in any genre, um, it's really important to to come up with a very specific why here and a very specific why now. Why is it happening at this particular moment in the story world's timeline? All right. Like, and if if you can come up with a, a reason for it to happen now and never before in the past and never before in the future, but now, then it creates this built-in urgency for the rest of the story. Um, and here the why now is it we are a few days away from the one year anniversary of Sydney's mom being murdered, which, you know, traumatized Sydney and traumatized the town. So it's perfect. It's a perfect example of a great why now for a horror story. And the why here is, I mean, Woods- that's answered well, itself. It's Woodsboro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's yeah. already there. Yeah. Right. We just talked about that. Yeah, exactly. So I didn't, you were, I think this was Jamie wrote this down. The unconventional half man. I did. But you did. Oh, okay. I was sorry. I, Jamie, <laughs> I you always do a good job describing what the half, half man, man is, is. And that's part of the monster in the it's house. It's part of right? the monster now. So what is so a monster in the house usually has this kind of, uh, what's the word archetype we'll call it so it's called a half man and the half man is usually is usually someone who survived the horror and knows how to deal with it uh so it uh, the perfect example is quint from jaws i'll use jaws twice for this also another one that's in save the cat goes to the movies it's broken down it might actually be his number one actually mm-hmm. i said scream but it's probably jaws uh so quint's a half man he's somebody that survived an encounter with a shark he knows how to deal with it he kind of has knows the rules of the shark and all that stuff. And speaking of rules, the half man in this one would be Jimmy. Randy. Jamie Kenny. Yeah. 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 Right. yeah. But what's weird, so so typically, like you think about what this movie is commenting on Halloween, for example, the most famous slasher movie, arguably. Uh Loomis is the half man. Um, so compare Loomis to Randy. Well and <laughs> Randy, it's it's. Are you saying unconventional because Randy hasn't experienced the horror? He's only seen horror movies. Exactly. He's book right. smart. He's book yeah. smart, he, but he hasn't actually like dealt with anything. Randy is an example of what this movie is all about, which is taking conventions of the genre, taking tropes, taking cliches, taking genre patterns, and turning them on their heads. And for his, like like you just said like Randy has not experienced the monster um he's 
usually always wrong when he states the rules and predicts what's going to happen, right? Usually the 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 half man is always right about what's going to happen with the monster and like heed his warning because this is what's going to happen and then it does. And usually the half man adds credence to the horror and makes it like you need to take this more seriously and in this movie it's always played for a joke. Like you need to laugh at this. Um, and, uh, usually the half man, um, uses this information and people listen to the half man and survive because of it. In this movie, no one listens to the half man and everyone dies because they don't listen to him. (laughs) And then in most, you know, the famous half man label is because like Quint dies, like he gets eaten by the monster that he's warning everyone about and is is aware of and previously survived in this movie (laughs) the half man survives randy survives randy no half man loomis survives but loomis gets really fucked up um also uh, conventional in that randy is uh one of like he also admits he could be the killer and i think the audience i mean it's been so long (laughs) since we all saw it but the audience Incredibly believes that the half man at some point could be the guy. Yeah, right? that's true. Yeah, like when Randy, have we ever said like Quint? What if Quint was could be the shark? Yeah, that's that's insane. <laughs> that doesn't. Right. It doesn't. <laughs> but it, and it also makes sense in this one because it starts out with like a movie obsessed quiz, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. who better to do that but Jamie Kennedy in yeah. this in this case, you know, a blockbuster I mean, video. Uh, as yeah. a guy who like spent a decade working in video stores, that's another reason why this movie it speaks to me. <laughs> we were Randy, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I just I just thought it was, you know, one example of like what this movie does so well, which is taking genre expectations, using them, and then subverting them. And well, speaking of if he was the villain or not. Let's talk about the horror villain construction. Bingo. Um, yes. Horror villain construction. Yeah. This is so, an interesting so, one with the two villains, right? Yeah. So, well, yeah, the, I, I, in this, in this exercise that I'm, that I'm going to break down and about talk face. about that. I'm yeah, just talking yeah. about like when you're construct, when you're making a villain, right? Like you have your, there's some basic ingredients that, make a great villain in a harm in a horror movie specifically and like the first one is like well what do they look like right like they pick a what's interesting is this is to know they talk about this in the commentary is in the in the script the costume is not described just the mask yeah and in the script the knife is not like a specific memorable blade whereas in, when they got to the production side of things, they really were were choosy about what the blade looked like so that when you see it, it looks different than a butcher knife in the kitchen. It's very distinctive. It doesn't look and like Chucky's knife. It looks like the Scream knife. It looks unique yeah. to this killer, yeah, right? Yeah. So you have your, your modus operandi, like weapon of choice is very specific and unique, and that's like something that's important to like constructing a horror villain. Um, the, the, the tactics... What is what does your killers typically do to hunt? He this calls one is up. very specific. He calls people, he uses a little voice thing, and he taunts them with horror horror knowledge, <laughs> right? Which is specific to this premise. Um, personality. This is like really important. You have to make a decision. Is your is your killer gonna be silent? Silent? Or is he gonna be like uh have a voice? And what if he has a voice? 
what motivates this personality? Well, this is a movie that is about like horror, horror cliches. And so he's going to be a killer that uses horror wordplay and makes fun of the genre. Um, and what are the warning signs? So an, another great uh, technique when you're, when you're workshopping, what do I want to, how do I want to make this horror villain memorable is to come up with warning signs that we, f- we instantly feel dread even when the killer's not on screen. And so some examples are uh, the rattle in Predator. Every time we hear the rattle, even though we don't see the Predator, we know he's there or he's right off screen. We feel dread. Um, the, um, The rippling water in Jurassic Park. Every time we see a rippling water, we don't see a dinosaur, but we know that there is a threat right off screen. Um, the shark fin in Jaws. I literally just call these shark fins, like, what is your shark fin? Because every time we see a shark fin, it's so iconic and memorable, even though we don't see the shark, we know there's a beast right under the surface waiting to attack. So in this one, they do a great job. Like, every time there's a phone call, even when it's a safe phone call, you think it's going to be the killer. You see, you feel dread. Uh, they do an amazing job of having motivated reasons to have the mask on screen all the time, even when the killer's not around. Like reporters have the mask and they're showing it to the audience. It, uh, the police have the costume because it's a costume that's readily available. So, so they make the costume and the, the, the presence of the killer felt even when the killer is not on screen. So it's just, it's a, this is another great example of, of a uh, whiteboarding technique, you know, to make yeah. the killer as memorable as possible. And then I wanted to, real quick, I'm using your words, Jamie. Uh, I did a rooting resume. <laughs> what is the rooting resume from, Jamie? Save the cat rights for TV. <laughs> now available on Amazon. <laughs> So we've I was talked worried we wouldn't get that in there somewhere. <laughs> we've talked about in previous episodes how you can use the rooting resume and tweak it to the negative in some top in some of the categories to make a compelling villain. We did it for if you listen to the Back to the Future episode, uh, Biff has an amazing rooting resume. Uh, if if you listen to the Joker episode, um, Joker has an amazing has a really compelling rooting resume. Uh, we even did it for the gremlins and to, to kind of uh, reverse engineer why the gremlins are such compelling villains. We did a rooting resume and showed that like they have a lot of the same rooting techniques that your hero does that make you like interested in them. We did one for Hans Gruber. The list goes on and on. So um, Jamie breaks it down in his book into eight different types of rooting techniques. Um, they're underdogs. Ghostface is the opposite. Ghostface has all the power. Right. So he, he, he there's there's an instance where the polar opposite of the typical rooting technique makes you interested in the killer. Um, they care about something or someone. He cares about. They care about the killer. Cares about something as something or someone deeply, but it's for a negative reason <laughs> because he wants to kill them, right? So it's another. There's your second one, like do the same thing that we do to be compelled by a hero, but flip it on its side. And all of a sudden it makes for a good villain. Um, they're fun. I mean, 
I mean, the, horror movie trivia, right? That's already... Yeah, dude. Right. <laughs> they are so fucking witty. Um, they have a charming personality. It's the reverse. They have, like, a fucking uh, threatening personality that, that couldn't possibly be charming. So taking that rooting, rooting technique and turning on his side. Um, I think this one is an interesting one. We know their struggle. They have a secret pain. They have a painful past. In this one... We don't know know, their secret pain. And the tension is around discovering what that secret pain is, right? Like, we want to know, like, why are they doing this? It's a, well, it's a whodunit on top of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, We wish we were more like them. We don't wish the average human watching this hopefully is saying, like, we want to be the opposite. I'd like to to be as athletic as they are. (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) there there are some in this category, Jamie, that, to to your point, Bob, resourceful. They're very resourceful. Very, The smartest person in the room. Unless it's against Sydney, they are the smartest person in the room. Um, Overcoming their fears. In this one, they are causing others to overcome their fears. Um, so it's another reversal. Um, they have a drive or personal ethics to do what's right. <laughs> it's the it's exactly. with Ghostface. Yeah. It's the exact opposite. Um, uh, they're just like us. For the average person, they're the opposite of us. Hopefully, right. Um, so there's another like stark reversal. Um, they're the best at something. I mean, they're the best at killing horny teens. Right. So. It's just I think Jamie's Save the Cast for TV rooting resume works very well here to show why the ghost. It's interesting because it's a mixed bag of reasons you'd love them and reasons you'd love them. Uh, And I think that's what makes the interesting villain. You know, Freddy Krueger, for example, there are things he makes us laugh, but he also scares us. You know, I mean, there's there's a dual thing. The one thing about Ghostface that I'll point out that when I saw this on a Friday night in the 90s and the fact that he the the killer was almost an Indiana Jones type in some ways. I'd almost put him like Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones, my favorite. Raiders of the Lost Ark, my favorite movie. Indiana Jones is fun because he takes damage, he screws up, he, he fails all the time, and that's what I I remember watching this movie and seeing Ghostface and the fact that he was getting beat up and falling down and all that stuff. The audience was laughing in the, mixed with the tension in this way because we had never seen that really. I mean, maybe. Yeah. And that's you know, another one way, it, you know, subverts your expectations. It's, it's sending up Michael Myers, who's just oh. slow and, you know, or Jason. Or Jason yeah, you know, like, yeah. Super strong. Also, instead of just standing around and walking, he's running full speed. He's sprinting. Yep. He's like, he's, you know, and he's got this goofy costume on that he's tripping in, you know, and I mean, <laughs> And it really, I can't even really express the surprise that had nowadays we've mm-hmm. seen it. So, yeah. but the audience was laughing through the scenes because it was that weird mix of tension, mm-hmm. but seeing things that surprised us mm-hmm. th- that we were just cracking up watching it, uh, which is very similar to Indiana Jones or somebody who would be doing this action thing and it'd be tense, but then there'd be funny moments in the mix. You know, you'd see him, <laughs> also- you'd see him get hurt. I always mm-hmm. thought with Scream, um, the, like what you're saying, Jamie, with like how much he screws up 
or how much the ghost face screws up it grounds the movie like a lot of movies i think would have made it like is this like even some kind of weird supernatural thing going on they would have been filmed differently it would have been executed right. differently but this movie does it it is 100 percent obviously a guy in a suit in the movie itself in the reality <laughs> of the movie like he's messing up and it, i think it grounds it it, it yeah you know, it, it brings you into what is happening more. It's not. Yeah. It's not playing the guessing game of what could it be. It's we know it's a dude. Right. This it, is a person. It's a person, yeah. and and <laughs> and they don't even. They're not even like all powerful. They're making insane. This is not the shape. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the shape. Right. It's not. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> so I I think that brings us to talking about maybe the most uh, iconic opening scene of our yeah. lives. Maybe right. Holy shit. A yes. masterclass. Speaking yeah. speaking of Indiana Jones, because this is like right. the horror movie version of it. You know, yeah. it's like the same of thing. The Boulder scene, yeah. Of the of the mini episode that could almost be its own movie, and I find this yeah. one really the best horror short ever. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I you know I I teach a short film class to college students, and one of the things over the years, if you go back and look, I started to see this thing, and if you're screenwriters, you've probably seen it too where a lot of people, almost more than spec scripts, maybe not more, but there as many, we started to sell these mini contained short films and then they'd become movies and it would break their careers. Kind of you could point to Lights Out as one of the early ones. So you could go look mm -hmm. up Lights Out and go watch Lights Out if you haven't. Two, two and a half minutes of film, easy to shoot. The guy shot it in his apartment. It's something anybody could do. Uh, and, and then he got... You know, he became the guy who did Shazam, Shazam or, and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but there are all kinds. There was one that sold the Amblin that got made into a movie last year. I can't remember what the movie was called, but the I, I remember it came out. The short was called Larry. Uh, there was another one that was kind of had a poltergeist vibe, that, uh, and that sold to, like, uh, Sam Raimi's company, Ghost House. Uh, there were all kinds. There were one after another. Of these shorts, the that evil, was, little Evil Dead remake guy made the robot short. The evil, the, yeah, uh, yeah. Pa robot panic or panic something yeah, panic. I can't remember panic, what it was called, but it was Fetty Alvarez. Yeah, and, then, and they they got really popular in the last I don't know five or six years to the point where I now that one was even older uh, to the point where I would go into meetings and I'd say you know is there anything you'd like me to take a look at and more than once it came up well we we optioned this short film and we're looking for a writer to bring a take on it or something like that and i was like you know so more than once that happened i'd say at least three or four times people said yeah we just optioned this short and uh we'd love you to take a look and pitch on it um anyway which brings me to a point that this opening sequence could be that i mean it's the mm -hmm. type of thing that somebody could have shot just this opening sequence and released it to the world and it been this huge hit. And then this movie got made because it's a microcosm of the whole concept mm -hmm. all in one thing. It has a beginning, a middle end. Um, and this particular one has so much story to it. You could break it down into a save the cat mm -hmm. beat structure. Um, it, and just just super quick. And I'll, I'll just kind of riff it off the top of my head because now I totally forget what I was thinking with this. Um, let me see if I I thought I took the pillar beats. Yeah. So just really quick, I'll kind of do the pillar beats. But so save the cap, you know, the 15 beats template to write your story, usually used for features. It you can use the pillars to write sequences like this, to write especially works if you have like a long, almost self-contained sequence. If you have like 
a uh, the finale could almost be written use this even though there is a five point finale um but this one really does break down it's like you have the phone ringing as a great opening image the ring ring you know it kind of and the the phone the phone ringing uh introduces you to the character uh so the opening image phone rings the second pillar beat is the catalyst like what's the thing that really kicks the story started and um for me there you could argue and in a lot of good short films the catalyst is the opening image like if you watch a lot of short films ring ring hello oh no this this one <laughs> this one stretches it out a little bit longer but if you're writing a short film consider that you want to start literally from the ring from the phone ringing um but in this one i i said i want to know who i'm looking at to me that was the thing that ticked this up to more than a crank call because she seems cool with it until he says that you know and then and then from there she starts looking around and i put the break into two to see what your insides look like when he says that and then you get the doorbell and you know he's there so that means we're in a life or death encounter she's locked in she's locked in it's a monster in the house story a mini monster in the house story she's trapped alone um killer on the house too in a in house. It's in a house. There's a monster. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so, so I, and then the next midpoint, or I'm sorry, the next pillar beat is the midpoint. And that's usually a stake raiser, a surprise twist. The boyfriend on the porch, open the window. There's the boyfriend on the porch. Now she has to play the game because the stakes have raised. A story is crossed with B story. It's more personal now. There's something personal at stake outside, besides her own life, even beyond her own life. So the boyfriend's out there, the game begins, the quizzing, all that stuff. I map the all is lost, which has a whiff of death, is when her boyfriend gets killed. She answers the question wrong. The boyfriend dies. The break into three, she goes for a knife. She grabs it. She takes action. The killer bursts in. So now it becomes a chase movie, essentially. So now we've shifted gears into a finale. It's not just a stalk and a quiz and, and tension. Now it's an actual chase movie. The finale is the final chase, but what, what interests me, then the, you know, the parents come home, all that stuff. Well, this isn't the final image. The final image does do a premise pretzel, which I think we'll talk about later, where you take the premise and then you look at it a different way, where the parents try to go call 911 and they pick up the phone and they're like, they hear her dying on the phone. Yeah. So it uses yeah. the phone again and it bookends that opening image of phone ringing. It does give you another shock moment of her hanging there. And, and and murdered but anyway as you can see it kind of has all the beats it has midpoint twists it has catalysts it has all its lost moments it has finales it does bookends it does premise pretzels it's a mini story all in one so if, i think if you're looking to make if you're if you're the type of person that's a screenwriter but also considering a short film i think a film like this the, the opening sequence of this is something to look at um, if I were to suggest I'd do a shorter version of it, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, 14 minutes. Yeah, this is 14. You want to probably keep it under 10. It'll save you a lot of money and time. But um, I think it's something to look at. It's a good way to almost reverse engineer it. Like if you had a screen, you could see where this would be a prototype of the story you want to tell, the bigger story. A lot of the students in my class, I have them pitch, you know, what story do you want to tell? And they pitch me feature stories. And I say, What's a version, what's a, what's a six minute prototype of that, that you could film 
that if I watched it, I'd get the cleverness of the concept, mm -hmm. but you wouldn't have to do 90 minutes or 100 minutes. And I think this one can kind of be instructive to look at. In that yeah, regard. it's it establishes the self-aware tone, the satirical tone. It establishes the killer, who he is, what he is, why he's formidable. It, it uses the cell phone as a weapon. It it uh, it it sets up uh, that this is going to be a movie where we show you cliche situations and back them up and do something different. So like I, it, also exactly this exactly go with the short film theory thing, but it also sets up stakes really hard because the fact that mm -hmm. we lose Drew Barrymore right away means that everyone is on the table, the shopping block. Right? Everyone's Absolutely. on the table. Everyone, and, anyone can die. And the demasking shows us that it's going to be a mystery since they don't show us who the killer is that we're going to have to figure out by the end. Right. Yeah. It, and it I, also, I, I'm not also, go ahead, yeah, Jamie. Go for it. it also sets the tone. We're going to talk about the types of horror in a bit, but it displays all the types of horror. I, I guess I could label them. Now. Yeah, do it, do it now. Do it, do yeah. It, yeah. yeah. So and now I always forget these because I'm, I'm always paraphrasing <laughs> Stephen King. And every, Stephen episode, King. <laughs> every episode I say I forget them. Because I just relabel them every time. Uh, so there's the the three are dread, which is the easy one to remember. And dread is the the um, the promise of horror that that building tension that we know something bad's going to happen. We feel uncomfortable. It's like we know there's there's somebody hiding in the shadow. That's dread. And and a lot of scripts that I read forget the dread. And the dread mm -hmm. is dread fuels most horror movies. Um, most because the next one is terror which a lot of screenplays kind of get right but the problem with terror is once you do something that's terrifying uh it almost gives a release to the to the watcher it's like hitting a big joke and then you're like ah and you come down and then you have to build it again after the terror so if you hit too many times with terror it just becomes too much like, yeah no, it's, it's too yeah. one note yeah and um so this opening has dread, the, the whole phone conversation, the what's going on out there, what's in the shadows. It has terror when the when he breaks through the breaks through know, the, the glass. Door, the glass. He's um, running past her in the hallway. Yeah. That's that's the example of terror. And it has a little bit of the last one, which Stephen King says he'll go for it, gross out. And gross out is uh, you know, I think there's when the boyfriend's killed, there's some gross out. And then that final shot has some gross out as well. Yeah. So uh, all three are. It kind wields of, them all. I, mean, I, I would say stabbing all. her in the heart is pretty. Stabbing her in the heart. Yep, yeah, that's another yeah. one. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, and I, I was gonna go through. I'm, I'm, I'm doing the opposite of what we're supposed to do in this podcast, and I'm assigning homework to the listeners who are interested. Um, this, this uh, opening sequence has an incredibly instructive use of the good news, bad news technique. Which, Jamie, you want to explain that, and then I'll talk about it a little bit more? Sure, sure, yeah. So and I, it, one way to describe this, too, is a lot of action sequences that fall kind of flat are just a hero goes through and constantly gets does the right thing all the way through. So I, I've read action scripts where it's like, he, you know, John Wick punches this person in the face, then they shoot this person, then they drive the car, then they... And there's no bad news. It's flat. So it, it's flat. Mm -hmm. and so a good action sequence and uh, and a good instinctual writer, which I hope you'll all become, is is one where something good might happen and we get that thrill, but then we twist that and turn it into bad news. There's something immediately bad 
falls. Or sometimes the good news is actually bad news is what happens. Like you think it's good news. And then it's kind of like Han Solo uh, chases. The Solo the episode, we had a great one. I was going to say yeah. that that's kind of our best good news, bad news. And plus yeah, Raiders, of the, course. The Han Solo one. It's yeah. funny. The one that came to, always comes to mind with me is in the A New Hope, uh, which I hate calling it that, but Star Wars, A New Hope. Uh, When Han Solo chases the stormtroopers, he's got the smile on his face, and he's like, ah, and he's chasing them. And then he stops, and there's like, and in the special edition, there's like 100 stormtroopers. But in the original, there's like a dozen, and they're all like looking at him. And it's like, oh, so the good news is I'm on the run. I'm having fun. The bad news is, oh, there's 12 of them, and then he's on the run. So it's it's a good example of good news, bad news. Yeah. So, and and we've talked about how you can use this in any genre. So, if you have two people, there's a conversation at a table, and this is just a, a heavy drama. You can still just put a blank page full of good news, bad news, and have the dialogue interactions become more compelling by having a positive progress in the conversation than a negative, positive, negative. So, um, if you watch the last four minutes specifically of this opening sequence, the the chase. Jamie mm-hmm. is nonstop good news, bad news. That is, it's it's really kind of amazing how every single beat is a good news or a bad news back to back. So if you take the last four minutes and just study them, if you're wondering how to use this technique, watch the last four minutes of the opening sequence and just take a piece of paper with good news, bad news blank on there and track how the story goes from good to bad, good to bad. Even when Casey's like close to death, they're still giving us good news moments to kind of give us glimmers of hope that she might survive until the very end when she's dead. There's good news right up until the moment she's dead. So even after she's works. stabbed, like even oh, after she's, she's right stabbed. there with her parents. Oh yeah. wait, she can't speak. Okay. Yeah. yeah like, yeah. On, on, I mean, on, shit, on. I'll do the last 10. I'll do the last 10. Do it. Yeah. Do it. All right. Um, here we go. Ready? Um, Ghostface appears in the, she's, she's safe outside the house right now, right? So this is like the last two minutes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, Casey's good news. The good news is Casey spots her parents' car approaching in the distance. The bad news is Ghostface appears in the window behind her and attacks her. The good news is Casey punches him in the face with the phone, knocking him over and runs away. The bad news is Ghostface catches up to her, stabs her and chokes her. The good news is Casey punches Ghostface again with the phone and knocks him over again. The bad news is now Casey's too weak to run. Good news is her parents have parked in the driveway and Casey can see them getting out of the car. The bad news is Casey's throat is too injured to scream and she can't get their attention. Uh, The good news is Casey unmasks the killer. The bad news is we can't see his face and he mortally wounds her. The good news is Casey's parents come inside and discover the signs of struggle. They find the phone. The bad news is all mom hears on the other end is her daughter being butchered. The good news is Casey's parents are about to use the phone to search for her. The bad news is the phone line goes dead. The good news is now mom goes outside. Will she find Casey in time to save her? The bad news is mom does find Casey and she's dead. So, I mean, it's 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 such a great technique how to take a scene and go like, well, I got to get from the beginning to the end. How do I make it interesting? The basic first step could be just to figure out how to track, make it go good news, bad news for the duration. Also, uh, just a side note, what a great 
moment of like premise delivery right away in that you get the killer stabbing someone and they can't scream yeah <laughs> like, what a straight, reversal it's, it's like straight up gosh whiteboard right yeah. whiteboard thing. i mean like, we can do a whole episode scream. on the whiteboard for this jesus yeah right the, uh, the the not screaming is one of my favorite beats on rewatch of this yeah. i just love she i think can't that's scream. Like the most brilliant thing that i probably missed because i was probably laughing at the scene when i first saw it madness 96 yeah, yeah. but honestly whenever i rewatch it, man like, wow. jamie right that's yeah exactly that's, that's like what your goal is in the opening cold open of any horror movie is to make us feel like we are in the hands of a madman as jamie likes to say yeah um, and and killing drew barrymore in the beginning is exactly that it's mm -hmm. it's if they'll if they kill her anybody can die in this movie right she's the biggest star in the movie it was marketed as her being the lead um it's it was, still it's still weird even now even when i watch the movie now it's always it always strikes me as weird that drew barrymore dies i don't know yeah. it's still even it still works all these years later she's um, she's really good in it too mm -hmm. and it was kind of it's kind of a time when the jury was like out on her like mm -hmm. you know where's her career gonna go what's she up to and she's so good in that she she's is. so good in it. and she was supposed to play originally sydney prescott how about that which is a uh, probably we should talk about next <laughs> <laughs> yes she is a is, is it which what is 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 this your favorite final I, I hate saying final girl now final woman mine would be nancy probably nancy yeah i i think she is my favorite and okay. uh i i think part of it is the performance there's something there's something about nev campbell that there's like a vulnerability her reactions to things she's angry she's sad i i don't she's know also I, sly she's sly like there, mm -hmm. she like, even though she's, like, the underdog in a lot of these situations, she seems to have something else working behind the scenes. Like, mm -hmm. she's figuring it out on the go mm -hmm. and doing a good job of it, you know? Yeah, yeah I mean, I they do a great job in the in the first confrontation with the... It's the power of contrast, right? Like, um, like there's immense power in contrast. The first time that she gets a call from Ghostface everything goes the complete opposite of how it went with Casey because of Sydney's character. Um, like the call, she's not intimidated by him. She, she refuses to play his quiz game and she mocks the genre, right? She says, he says, do you like scary movies? She says, what's the point? They're all the same. Some stupid killer stalking some br big breasted girl who can't act and is always running up the stairs when she should be running out the door. It's insulting. And so she's mocking the genre's treatment of women. So it's just, it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's great writing. And once again, an example of what this movie is main purpose is to take cliches and genre expectations and then the medium immediately point them out and turn them on their head. And she's obviously way more intelligent than the killers in the and end. Right. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. I always thought that was uh, my favorite part too. Is just, they're obviously not sm that smart. <laughs> even even in yeah. the even in the bedroom when when it feels like she's uh she's she's sort of uh losing uh losing her momentum to find the killer like there's like a beat where she's still working things out and kevin williamson said he he he, he was worried that the audience would think she she had stopped trying to figure out who the killer was when he at when she asks him about like she asked billy like hey like 
who did you call when you got arrested? Because he he wanted he said he wanted the audience to be like, don't forget, like she's smarter than him. Um, and even now he thinks he has the upper hand uh, and she's she's about to gain it on him. I mean, also, this is like the rare mystery or whodunit where she figures out who it is. Like it, almost at the beginning. Yeah. She, <laughs> Which and then is, she, th- she's, she says she thinks she's wrong, but then she, it turns out she was always right. right. Which is another great subversion, right? Like yeah, they yeah. point the finger, arrest the killer. Like he's the first person arrested for it. <laughs> and Kevin Williams had said he, he, he knew that the audience would be taken off, like thrown off kilter by that and be like, well, there's no way he could be the killer because that's not how these things work. And for the rest of the the movie, he found he was going to make you question that, like using that expectation. You have like it can't be Billy because too obvious. It's too obvious for yeah. a movie that's saying that the obvious isn't going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> well, what about Sydney herself? I'm um like, let's talk about her arc. You know, what like, do you guys think? This one's a little yeah. What we all complicated. Say- we always say that when we talk about arcs is would the character do the same things? Would the character from the ending of the movie do the same things if you took that character and placed them at the beginning of the movie, right? The before and after snapshot. Right. Yeah, and in this case, I think she would do. Like, I think her toughness and stuff and her survivor survival instincts, I'm not sure that her arc brings about the victory in the end. I'm not sure if it does. Mm-hmm. What do you think? So I, I was, Bob, what do you think? And then I'll, I'll, I'll kind of, I'm, I'm trying to put together my words here. It, I mean, I kind of get, I'm kind of picking off what Jamie's saying, like, her actual bravado and her smarts and her willpower, I don't think change. I think they're always in, they've always been intact. You know, they're always there. It's more her knowledge that changes. And we kind of, I think we've parsed this in the past. Like what a character knows is not who the character is. Mm. Right. I think she knows more at the end. I'm not so sure she's a different person. Okay. But so, I'd love to hear your take on it. I am trying to, so I'm, I, I used a lot. I, I was trying to listen to the commentary for mm-hmm. their insight. Um, so Kevin Williamson said the genesis of Sidney Prescott for him was what would happen if we followed a woman who did lose her virginity during the course of the horror film? Would she survive and how would it change her? And so to me, that right away shows that like he's really focused on her sexuality being the the thing that change like is which explored. is a trope of the genre too. He that's another which is genre you know trope. the final girl. Um, you have sex in a horror I, movie, you die. They right. Say it in the movie. So I took I took a quote from uh, a, a great women in horror article about Sydney Prescott. Google that. The article is really fucking great. It goes over the whole series. Um, this is from men, women in chainsaws, uh, which is a great book by Carol Clover, uh, about gender in modern horror films. Um, and it defines the final girl as the final girl undergoes agonizing trials and destroys the antagonist and saves herself. She is not a heroine, but a hero, one that destroys its adversaries. Uh, Put simply, the final girl is the ultimate feminist symbol, a badass chick who can rescue herself. This is an archetype not specified to horror, but final girl theory. But the other ingredient is that she's a virgin. 
that's like the second part of that definition. So this movie says, basically, what happens if Sydney has sex? And so I think, and, and if you look at like her mom, like all her, all her internal grief and she's basically being gaslit into feeling like her grief isn't, isn't uh, valid. And Billy is gaslighting her about like not wanting to have sex with him. Um, and it's all kind of tied together. And then her mom is basically a woman who has like sexual exploits all over town and she has extramarital affairs. So it's all tied together to that sex something. And I, I think it's basically, I don't know how the movie, I don't necessarily think the movie does a good job of showing that her sexual agency changing makes her a better survivor. But I think it, it like laughs in the face of, of how, what, we, what we expect, meaning like Laurie Strode is a virgin, right? All her friends are having sex and she's not. That's made very clear. And it's very clear that every one of her friends who has sex gets killed by Michael Myers. This movie says the same thing. We introduced Sydney Prescott. She's not having sex. She's virgin. She's chaste. Um, but she's doing that. She's, she's, she's holding on to her. Um, she's like afraid of having sex because her mom was sleeping with men all over town. And then she witnessed her getting brutally murdered. So the movie ties together those genre expectations, right? Her mom, suffered exactly what all the previous women in horror movies suffer which is she had sex and then she died she was brutally murdered so sydney's kind of like fearing like if i do that i'm gonna get brutally murdered too and the audience is like if she has sex is she going to suffer the same fate as her mother um so i think it's her arc is like inner it's about like like sexual agency i don't I don't it's, know because I don't think the the movie does a good job of yeah, show, I, having her express that. Yeah. yeah, I I the way I look at it, and this is really imposing some things on it a little bit, but you know, because you kind of tell us about Billy, and they say, you know, we started out what I, you know, they use all the TV lingo and stuff, R rated, then went to PG thirteen, and it almost feels like like her mother's um, reputation is part of the reason why she won't you know take the next step do it right yeah. so it it makes me feel like her through this movie is arcing to say you know i choose my own life i don't let other people and reputations and that kind of bs mm -hmm. choose me you know i think mm -hmm. i think the movie has something to say with that yeah and then i think the world kind of you know she survives the world she proves that you can survive the world even though she did that, you know, even though, even she, though didn't she, yeah. And so to me, I was wrestling with this, but I, I didn't really, I'd almost have to watch it just for this and try to mm -hmm. come it's up with there. it. It's there. It's definitely Do you there. think some of it has to do with how she views her mother in the end? I mean, it, 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 you I have think, to say the very end, how it all comes together, but yep. she views her mother as having committed a sin for most yes. of the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, then and she's I don't, struggling. I don't think we hear her. Right. We don't hear her I say think you're it. Right. But like by the time the movie is over, she's even the, like her, she's kind of convinced that her mother is in fact not some kind of villain and didn't do anything right. wrong. She was just yeah. And yeah, I think like, the key yeah, I think I think you hit it. Like you, you look for the evidence, right? So I'll give you a couple examples. Um, I think it, it's certain. I'm not sure. That's why I wanted to bring up. No, this we're topic. just we're kind of working this one out. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, we are like three, my favorite we are three to dudes to too. By exactly. The way. Yeah. Right. And that's why it's like a weird thing to talk about for three yeah. white dudes. Right. Like, so also written and created by two dudes. So yeah, exactly. right, right. it is what it is. Yeah. So, so, but like, I think, I think it's the movie shows that she does have sexual agents. She is control in control of her sexual agency from the start. Like she will only let him do like on top of clothes fun. They mm-hmm. call it. Uh, pg-13 and she kicks him out very playfully kicks him out of the room when he tries to go to cross the line but even then she shows she flashes him so she's still controlling the narrative that she's still controlling but she feels guilty and shameful for not having sex and she even expresses that um to him when he gas he continues to gaslight her and then she says to Tatum, she says, he's been so patient with me. How many guys would put up with a girlfriend who's sexually anorexic? And then Tatum says, Billy and his penis don't deserve you. Like Tatum's like reinforcing, like you are the one who controls your sexual agency and you don't have to do what he wants you to do. And you don't have to feel guilty about it, that not doing that, right? That's very, very clear. That's measurable. Um, but then when she when she's like right before she has sex, she has this like quote unquote classic confessional scene where she says to Billy right before she makes the choice that she was going to have sex with him. She says, I can't keep wallowing in the grief process forever. And I can't keep lying to myself about who my mom really was. I think I'm just scared that I'm going to turn out like her, like, like the bad seed. So she's expressing that what's been keeping her is fearing that like the slut shaming, right? But but in the in the climax, after she has sex, so right, she has sex. So then the movie debates like, is she going to die now because she has she she has sex? So is she going to lose her power over the killers now because she had sex? But then they throw it in her face. Right. The whole climax is uh, Billy and Stu calling her mom a slut and saying, we're doing all this because your mom was had had a lot of sex. And I think in that moment, it sort of shows that like uh, Sydney does not agree with them. In that moment, she's like, fuck that. That's bullshit. You know like, what I mean? Like you're my the mom, villains. my mom was not the villain. You're the yeah. villain. My mom. Yeah. So I think in that, in those moments, that is growth, right? That is change. Where in the yeah, beginning, she's, she, she's letting everyone make her feel guilt and shame, not only about her use of sexual agency, but her mother's sexual agency um and and it, and there is could, measurable you, moments there you could argue that that overall the movie says when she does embrace her sexuality she comes to the ultimate she comes she triumphs and she comes to the truth because yeah, and that, even like because in the, of in the it. that's that's good bob yeah. and and even like if you, in the final moment with Stu, Stu is on top of her straddling her and he's like I always had a thing for you, Sid. So once again, putting like sexual dominance and then she says in your dreams and like, and kills him um, with the horror movie Halloween and Laurie Strode being hunted by Michael. Like that's literally what she kills him with, (laughs) which is a great whiteboard. Yeah. Um, But so I think it's circling around like not feeling guilt or shame or fear about her sexual agency, which is like really complex. But I think it's there. I don't know. I I, I also thought you have to dig. It, yeah. yeah, I I thought watching it too. 
there's a possibility that there's a bit of a flat arc as well, where she's mm -hmm. she kind of changes the world around her. And mostly I'm thinking about Gail. Uh, she, Gail kind of has an arc in a weird sort of way. She has like this redemptive arc in, mm -hmm. a, in, a, in a small sort of way. She does. And I, and I think yeah. she might, you know, I, I think Sydney might change the world around her in that regard. I do think there's hints of a arc, and I like everything you're saying. I, I think it all tracks, but in bingo. Uh, but <laughs> it, um, but it, it you know there is a, there was a part of me because Gail definitely has her own kind of side character arc that is based on that. That sometimes sometimes when you didn't have the full strong arc of a main character, sometimes you have that side character arc that that works works as well. That's true. The important yeah. flat arc is Dewey. <laughs> That's, I want to. <laughs> I want to skip past the comic obsessions because we're we're short on time, and I want to get to the things I think are are most instructive. Yep. Um, Let's get to the, it. Let, we'll we'll breeze through the horror movie classrooms stuff because I want to talk about the premise pretzel in the end. Um, <clears throat> so the the horror movie classroom scenes. Um, Wes Craven talks about like the the importance of this. He said. We wanted to highlight the cliches and in, in order to throw the audience off balance, we wanted to make everyone think, since the character's aware of the structure of the genre and the genre expectations and cliches, this isn't gonna go just like that. This isn't gonna be cliched. I don't know what to expect next. So it's just, I think this movie, like Jamie, like what do you think about the fact that like, even though this is pointing out the cliches, the strategy here is kind of what you cliche. should be doing with with all movies, right? When you're writing a screenplay, you need to identify the genre expectations that the audience desires, and you need to do something new with it. That's sort of your job for yeah. all it, screenplays. This this movie, when I was watching it this time, it reminded me of like Penn and Teller when they when they made the. And I'm a big Magic fan and stuff. And Penn and Teller when they became a huge hit their shtick was oh they're giving away the tricks right they're really <laughs> not giving away the tricks and in fact early on like if you saw Penn and Teller in Broadway in the in the 80s magicians were kicking them out of the magic society because they were giving away the tricks I feel the same way about this movie it's like they're giving away the tricks no they're doing the tricks yeah they're just, they're just kind of well, doing a they, call, they call it out and then they just do it right they call they say yeah, the, they the most obvious it. thing is the boyfriend being the killer and it just turns out he is <laughs> like it, like they're, but the but only the, reason but, is because they were calling it out it unfolds yeah but i'm saying the act of saying it makes you think it can't they can't be doing yeah. that right yeah, yeah. yes and th this was yeah. one of the I, I wouldn't say this is one of the first movies that did it, but it was one of the first big cheeseburger movies that then everybody started to try to do the same thing. To an extent. <laughs> yeah, and they're um, still doing it and they're still doing it to this day. <laughs> but it was the first one that was like, hey, let's be smart about this. Let's and we just watched The Matrix and they kind of did the same thing. Uh, yeah, the Matrix, right? I'd argue Shane Black was doing that with action mm -hmm. movies about, about five to ten years before that. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I wouldn't say it's the first, but what, I, first what I'm just trying to say, is, what I'm trying to say is like, this is your job as a screenwriter. Your job is to do exactly what Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson are doing for the duration, except not comment on it. Yeah. And this movie just says like, this is our job to tell a good story, but we're going to comment on it just to, just to make it more fun uh, and unique. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like 
I mean, when you go into a horror movie, if you're writing a slasher movie, you kind of have to play to the tropes or otherwise you're mm-hmm. not going to be a slasher movie. You know, you, you need can't to identify what it is that people expect from this experience, give it to them, but do something new with but, it. But then, yeah, exactly. So, you a know, killer you with get... a mask has a weapon who kills teenagers. Right. Right. It's all there. The same formula, but <laughs> yeah. they do something new with it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it was just, it, I thought it was another instructive thing about this movie. Like, just like reverse engineering why it works so well. That's why. Because this is your job as a screenwriter. Do you want to get into the premise, Pretzel? Woo! We got like a few minutes. That's, what, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. Let's, let's, let's hop in. Jamie, do you want to explain premise, Pretzel, just to intro this? Sure, sure. And it, we, you know, we, we gave a, example of sort of of it in the opening sequence it's kind of when you use a gag and then you use the gag again in a couple different ways so you're folding premise promise of the premise elements back on themselves so Mm -hmm. we mentioned the phone the phone rings the phone's a big part of it and then we it folds back around at the end of that sequence when we hear uh not Sydney. What's her name? Casey. Casey, Casey. Casey screaming yeah. on the other end of the phone. It folds back around when the parents pick up the phone and actually hear that she's on the phone. It's a way to kind of keep paying off. It's almost like you keep hitting the payoff drum. You set something up. It with pays the same off. thing. Yeah. With the same with the thing. Same technique. And I mean, then that, the movie pay, that payoff with, is a setup. With, yeah. with, it, 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 it pays off in the very end when Sydney uses the actual phone voice modifier. Exactly. It's, right. You know, it's not too much unlike in stand-up comedy, a callback. You yeah. know, when you mm-hmm. keep when you keep using the same joke, but now it means something different later in the mm-hmm. routine. It's it's kind of a callback. Yeah. So it's like this is a great example of a premise pretzel, right? Like the whole movie, the killer has been using the phone to taunt its victims and Sydney. And in the in the climactic third act, she takes control of the situation by using that very tactic against them. And she's the one on the phone. She's the one using the voice box. She's the one. It's just like the Predator, right? Like in, in the Predator, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's covered in mud, camouflaged. He's up in the trees. He's setting traps. You can see him. He's, He's hunting the predator. The hunter predator becomes the hunted. How the turn? How the turntables? Right. Oh, so Michael Scott. Yeah. The killers are tired, bleeding, on the run. She's the one dressed up like Ghostface, hiding in closets. So it's a great example of how to take the premise and reverse itself within the movie. But the, the question I wanted to ask you guys, this is like my favorite thing about the movie. We got a couple minutes left. Um, this, is a major, this, this is a major <laughs> audience contract violation. We've talked about the audience contract a little. Everybody has their own little definition. But the audience contract basically is like, I am in an arc plot movie, right? Your, your, your arc plot, which is your cheeseburger that we're talking about right now, your mini plot, which is kind of a mix of experimental and some cheeseburger and your anti-plot, which is just like the weird experience that doesn't have plots, doesn't close loops. This one is an, is an arc plot. And in arc plot stories, you have a hero and the audience contract is, I'm going to experience whatever the experience, the, the character experiences. So whatever Sydney is doing, I'm, on board with her whatever sydney feels i feel what she feels whatever sydney learns i learn what she learns if not when she learns it almost immediately after in this climax 
Sydney disappears. Yeah, we don't, we're not with her anymore. We don't know what she's doing. We don't know where she is. We don't know what her plan is. It is a fucking violation of the audience contract. It should not work. But because we so want, I'm, 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 I'm curious why it works. Like, why do you think it works? I, I think if you, I think the key to this is choosing the right times to pivot. So everything's been revealed. The, the movie, we're in a different world. You already now. had the villain speech. Yeah, mm-hmm. we've had, so now we're allowed to pivot. I, I think that's why. I think I think that's the key to making these scenes work. Is and 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 it's audience satisfaction point at that time. We're watching the bad guys in a horror movie, and they're going to pay the price. That's basically yeah. And they're they're now the ones who are on the on, backs against the wall. That's good. Yeah, let's see how they like it, and and we're cheering that at that point. So it all, all the tropes are now something we are rooting on as opposed to fearing also so. it works because we're getting we're kind of getting to know the two of them for the first time yeah so that kind of There's distracts so much you. intrigue as right. to what they're going to do the and, focus yeah. is on them and then sydney can kind of slip out of the narrative as the focus and then become, that's good yeah right that's good yeah. yeah i wanted to put a i it's relevant to this moment so i'll just quote it because like this was this was really insightful to me Wes craven said that the reason the the killer's plan falls apart in those moments is because they have never experienced violence. They do not know what it feels like to be a victim. They do not understand. They weren't prepared for how much it hurts to be stabbed. They weren't prepared for what it does to the human body and mind. And so because the killers are so ironically innocent, they lose. And and that was like something that I didn't really connect with, but like once you're hearing it, Wes Craven say it, it's like, oh man, that's fucking brilliant. And he to him, he said this in the commentary. This is the most unconventional thing about the movie, he said, because we are so used to seeing the killers be in control and 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 brutal to the end. We're not used to seeing killers be vulnerable in a and, way that this movie shows them. And and speaking to, I guess, the theme of watching horror movies but you know and disrespecting real life violence sort of thing like mm-hmm, these are exactly. people they these are people inspired right. they're those cynical movies. teenagers who yeah. watch the horror movies and don't understand the pain that they're that they're that the, the audience is laughing at right yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. wow perfect and also like in another movie you would have when billy is stabbing stewart it would seem like he was trying to enact another plan like he's trying to kill him no they were actually just thinking that that would work you know right. what I mean? They like yeah. he was doing it like, yeah, this is part of our plan, but he didn't realize he's you're just killing yeah. him, dude. They're <laughs> like, naivety. Yeah, they're naivety about, about about the happening. impact of violence. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, I think the the ticking uh, clock or bomb under the table is about to go off, gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you got something else to say. Uh, I think we're good on scream, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to wrap it up so so we can so we can meet our mark here. Um, buy Jamie's book. Uh, you know, subscribe to Thundergrunt on all major podcast apps and YouTube. And unless you guys got something else to add, I think we're. I, think I mean, we could do a what you learn, but we got. <laughs> 90 seconds. 90 seconds. So I don't know. If we should do that. <laughs> I just uh I I this movie for me 
was just as good as I remember it, and I hadn't watched it in 20 years. So. Yeah, that's what that's the way I always just, feel about this one. It, it's always I'm always entertained by it. I'm always impressed by it. There's so much crap. It deserves its movie. reputation and its franchise. Like it's it, it's it's a great movie. Um, I think that's everything, guys. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you. Yep. Bye bye. Bye. You have just listened to Writers Blockbusters, a screenwriting podcast featuring two professionals and another guy. Available only on Thundergrunt.